1: now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. So glad now to welcome Christopher Rufo to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hello, Christopher. Welcome.
0: It's great to be with you.
1: Now, if I've read this correctly, you are from Sacramento originally. Then you go to Georgetown. Then you go vanish back into the Pacific Northwest at the Manhattan Institute, where you are a, a, a writing whirling dervish for the the city magazine, the city journal, and for the institute. Did I leave out any major part? Yeah, you know,
0: I I spent about 10 years abroad uh, and and all over the country as a documentary filmmaker. That was kind of a a brief decade interlude, but other than that, that's about it.
1: You know, I found the documentary filmmaking stuff to be hard. I did that when I was a youngster in L.A., and it was hard. Did you enjoy it?
0: It has its ups and downs. I think the first five years or so, I really enjoyed it. I got to travel all all over the world. I got to meet incredible people. I spent a lot of time out in the field um but it becomes a grind uh the editorial process seems interminable uh, it's a brutal business and i think ultimately you feel like you're out of the game you disappear for a few years to make a film you pop back up you release it and then you disappear again so uh, writing which you can you know crank out you know op-ed in a couple hours sometimes uh for me is a lot more fun
1: And the editing bay is the worst place known to humankind. I think that is the worst thing I've ever had to do. So, Christopher, let's talk about why you are front and center in the crosshairs of the New Yorker and every other uh, left-wing critic I can find. I'm looking at the uh, Benjamin Wallace Wells piece from June of this year, how a conservative activist invented the conflict over critical race theory. That all makes me laugh because that suggests a complete ignorance of CRT or CT generally Let's begin at the beginning, but I got to echo that I was at the Alliance Defending Freedom Seminar leading their media roundtable this year, and Ryan Anderson stopped the whole group to say, we have to study Christopher Rufo. We have to do what Christopher (laughs) Rufo did. And I thought, well, that is high praise from Ryan. Uh, Tell us what you did. Tell us why the New Yorker and every other lefty hates you. Yeah,
0: well, uh, I'm a big fan of Ryan, so I appreciate that. But you know, what I did was uh, simple, but very effective. I did a really a series of investigative reports uh, looking at the federal government, looking at public schools, and now looking at corporations that have adopted the principles of critical race theory, which is an ideology that maintains that the United States is fundamentally racist, that the world can be divided into oppressor and oppressed based on skin color, and that the United States has to be subverted through revolution. Uh, in order for uh, uh, for cit- its citizens to be uh, liberated, and so you're taking this radical ideology that emerged in law schools and university programs, trickled down to K through 12. So I broke a series of these stories that generated enough attention to get President Trump's eye. Uh, he passed an executive order banning this kind of training programs from the federal government, uh, and then I continued this year uh, after the change of of, of presidents looking at education, and it sparked this, uh, really helped spark, rather, a grassroots revolt of parents who all of a sudden could see what was happening in their schools. And I was able to really contextualize it, to provide them a vocabulary, and to tell them you're not alone. If you see some of these uh, really abusive uh, racialist theories being taught to your kids, it's not just you, it's happening all over the country. And so it's become a big social issue, political issue, and one that is not favorable to the left because the more people learn about this, the more they see it, the more they recoil from it. And so uh, uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times and MSNBC and the New Yorker uh, have all come after me the last few months, uh, which, you know, I think it's a testament uh, to my influence, but also a kind of fun battle back and forth with these other media entities.
1: It's the highest praise possible. And uh, I think what you did, because I am from, World War I of Race Theory, which is back in the day of affirmative action, Bill Bennett, Terry Eastland, counting by race, uh, trying, to get, trying to win in Bakke, and losing, 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 still losing, although Sandra Day O'Connor told us there would only be 40 years of race consciousness in higher ed, and we were condemned now to a world of race consciousness. We thought we had won with, with uh, a proposition in California. We thought it was over. It came back through CT, critical theory, and then critical legal theory, birthed critical race theory out of Harvard, and it spread. And you kind of reintroduced the idea, and I, I think we can credit you with this, that um, scratch any race issue, you're going to find CRT. And since the left loves race issues, and they don't merely scratch them. They focus on them, they hold them up, they talk about them endlessly, and they suggest lessons that can be drawn from them that are um, uh, vast, when in fact they're usually very specific, as we're learning in the House case. Uh, you think that's a fair statement? This is the second world war over critical race theory? I, I think that's right in the sense that critical race theory is a synthesis
0: a lot of a lot of the ideological work and political activism of the 1960s. They've reinvented what used to be uh, uh, subversive or outside activism. They've reinvented it and really laundered it through university language, legal jargon, and its own constellation of new concepts and new uh, vocabularies. And so you don't get the same sloganeering, but what you get is really the same fundamental principles. And The same end goal, they want to engage in the suspension of private property rights, the redistribution of land, wealth, resources, and occupational opportunities by racial category. And they want to have an absolute leveling at the back end, equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity or simply equality as individuals under the law. And what they're trying to do now is a bit more sophisticated and a bit more insidious Uh, rather, again, than being outsiders, they're now insiders. They're in charge of uh, America's most prestigious institutions, not only in academia, but in K-12 education, in the federal bureaucracy, uh, even in the HR departments of large companies. And they're trying to manipulate the levers of institutional power, the levers of the uh, legal regime, in order to achieve the revolution that escaped the activists and agitators in the 1960s. And Thus far, they've managed to gain a foothold. I don't think they've actually changed policy in any fundamental way. That's certainly their goal. And I think when it touches people in their own personal lives, things like teaching this ideology to kids, taking children, for example, as young as four or five years old, separating them by race, telling some that they're oppressors, others that, there's, that, that, others that they're oppressed. Uh, this is what's really motivated and ignited this parent revolt. Because people are saying, wait a minute. In academia, we know that academia has been corrupted by this for decades. You expect it, but it's not threatening their way of being. It's not threatening their kids. It's not uh, really abusing them in the classroom. Once parents started to see that, once it was substantiated with reporting, and then once, you know, I and others were able to give them the vocabulary, teaching them how to speak about it, uh, we saw this tremendous, uh, this
1: tremendous pushback. All of now, the uh, Christopher, there are two kind of reactions on the center right. One is uh, CRT is a giant grift and, and people are making money and putting out curriculum and diversity consultants. I think that's misguided. Then there's my assessment, which is that this is a, um, a whole of uh, approach, a whole of, of the above to taking over institutions. So you just mentioned that some people think they haven't moved out of the academy, and but I think they have. I think they've actually institutionalized CRT is a means by which to consolidate uh, authority over other people's lives. It's a profound threat to freedom. Do you think it's a grift? Do you think it's an ideology? And if it's both, which is more dangerous? Yeah, I I think it's absolutely both. Uh,
0: You see it, as you say, being institutionalized at the highest levels of all of our prestige and, and, and power institutions. From the, all the federal agencies, I reported on uh, DOJ, the Federal Reserve, the FBI, uh, the Department of the Treasury. All of these institutions, you would think be, that would be immune from the social and 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 ideological influences from the humanities or the the social sciences. Uh, they've adopted it wholesale. And then underneath it, what you see is a uh, a category of a racial equity consultant or uh, or, or diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants that then bill bill institutions like the government, like school districts, uh, you know, lawyer rates six seven hundred dollars an hour, uh, in order to tell them that they're fundamentally racist, that they do these uh, bogus equity audits. They're almost like the uh, Scientology exams, uh, where they <laughs> take your pulse and tell you uh, that you're that you're internalized racist, um, and then they offer essentially a roadmap of reforming your institution to eliminate all unconscious bias. And these are eliminating invisibilities. It's very hard to prove one way or another. It's it's an article of faith. And therefore, what you see is they're endlessly justifying and expanding their purview. So you have these bureaucracies, for example, at University of California, Berkeley, they have approximately 400 employees in their diversity, equity, and inclusion wow. department. Wow. Um, and they keep expanding.
1: Yeah. I've got a faculty friend who's retired at the University of California, Irvine, who keeps getting emails from the diversity office at UCI asking them to please sign up to be part of the uh, various audits and various equity improvement measures being undertaken. Whenever I see it in, with government action attached, to I've been teaching common law for 25 years. I think it's all unconstitutional. I think every bit of it is unconstitutional when married to state power. And that's what I want to get to now, Chris, for what is The agenda. Now, a couple of decades ago, Nick Lemon at The New Yorker wrote a profile about me that I think is eventually going to be written about you, the most influential conservative you've never heard of. And I think you are right now the most influential conservative that many people haven't heard of. But as the left gets angry about Virginia, and I've got to talk to you specifically about Virginia, they're going to look for an author of this amazing blowback that that they felt uh, a week ago Tuesday. Have you already begun to feel that that's going to be you? <laughs>
0: I have. Yeah, the New York Times has actually uh, written two columns in the last two days uh, with my name, Christopher Rufo, as the first two words of the column. And then they proceed to, to denounce me uh, uh, and, and to hold me responsible as the intellectual architect of the pushback of the fight against critical race theory of these uh, sweeping political victories in Virginia and elsewhere. Um, And and I take it as a a flattering. I mean, you sense that they are trying to regain their footing because what what I and uh, a lot of my colleagues have now done is really blow up the ideological foundation of the entire racialist narrative, the entire uh, race uh, politics coalition that they've built. And so we're going after it at the theoretical foundation. We're using reporting and investigative journalism. To to create a spine for a counter narrative or a story that 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 undermines uh, their dominant narrative, and you know, to be very honest, and I said this to the New Yorker reporter, we're taking a lot of the techniques from the critical theorists, from the critical pedagogists, from the 1960s style activists, and now we're using them against their own ideologies, against the institutions that they now control, and I think this is really the first time that it's been done. Uh, In that way, with a level of sophistication on uh, language and presentation and information. And so you have uh, a lot of people. Randy Weingarten, the teachers union president, is always pulling her hair out about me. You have the founder of Critical Race Theory. Uh, Joy Reid absolutely loses her mind frequently. Uh, She'll put my tweets on her show and have a a kind of tantrum about it. And so I think it means that we're striking them uh, successfully. We're striking them at the right time. And I always think of when you're dealing with opposition uh, media, uh, you're really engaged in a, a dialectical process with them. They define you, uh, but then you also have some inf- ability to influence uh, how they present you to your opponents. So how they present me, for example, to the left wing audience. Um, and that's something that you can play with, that you can have some fun with, because for every hero on your side, you're a villain on their side. Um, and as long as you're okay with that, as long as you Uh, try to uh, uh, enjoy it or play with it or have fun with it, Um, I I think we can be successful and hopefully what I've done serves as a model for
1: others. Yeah, when you you refuse to be marginalized, you expand your authority, your influence. Let me tell you, there is a whiff of Alinskyism about your tactics and I mean that as high praise. A lot of people don't take the charge of Alinskyism very seriously, but it's a non-ideological charge about organizing, messaging, targeting, focusing, and thereby changing and persuading minds how do you react to that? There's a whiff of Alinskyism around Christopher Ruffo. <laughs> uh,
0: I can neither confirm uh, nor, nor deny. On uh, <laughs> but what I will say is that, you know, there's kind of a, a, a little cottage industry of trying to figure out what exactly I'm doing. Uh, a British publication, I think in a complimentary way, uh, called me a right wing Leninist. Uh, oh, that intellectual that, could, go uh, <laughs> yes, that yeah, could go either no. way. Yes, that could go either way. So so yeah so you know i i, I take these comparisons uh, as as compliments and uh and i think it's it's fun to uh keep uh the, the new york times off ed page in a state of uh, perpetual agitation and confusion uh, they don't know what to do uh they can't use any of the old tricks and i think conservatives are are starting to get uh, stronger to get tougher to get more sophisticated um, and and we found that now the left, that it's achieved dominant in institutions, um, they have to take a defensive posture, and they're used to being uh, the, the the outsiders or the activists. Uh, now they're the administrators and the bureaucrats, and so we can really have fun poking and prodding, um, exposing them, doing the document requests, uh, engaging in records production. Uh, and then just laying siege to their to their ideologies, laying siege to their institutions, uh,
1: and and that's what we're doing. Well, the film work makes a lot of sense because then you know how to lay out a narrative and you know how to tell a story. And I I think the modern definition of conservatism has to be preceded by coherent, competent, combative, and constitutional. Those are the the big C's for me. And if you don't know what you're talking about, you're a menace to the to the center right. If you don't know what the Constitution is, you're a menace to the center right. And if you do not have a necessary level of combative courage, you're not going to be very effective. You've got all the the right tools. So I'm going to warn the New York Times, you're in a sealed train headed from Seattle to Washington, D.C., and they've got to stop at pulling your Leninist move. Let me talk, Christopher, seriously about Virginia, because one of the reasons the appeal to parents' anxiety about CRT was so profound is not only is it real. And I think I'll have you, first of all, deal with the CNN response. We know it's not in the curriculum, but not only that, it appeared against the backdrop of a shutdown. So it was in relief against incompetence. Would you do both of those in first term? The first, which is CNN, it's not taught in the curriculum. Of course, you know, it's not taught in the curriculum. It's like a talking point that's spread out everywhere on all uh, left-wing media and indeed all legacy media now. So of course, it's not taught in the curriculum of Virginia.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing that they could do so with a straight face. It's not really a matter of opinion. Uh, It's a matter of fact. And we have the evidence from uh, not only the Virginia Department of Education, which to this very day has uh, critical race theory and critical race theory principles uh, on its website. They recommend for students and teachers to study critical race theory. Uh, I also have found documents dating back to 2015 when Terry McAuliffe was last governor, His Department of Education, again, promoting critical race theory to all uh, school districts in the the state. Uh, And then we have reports that were generated from parents who filed records requests that Loudoun County, Fairfax County, other counties were paying consultants sometimes $625 an hour for critical race theory uh, training and then creating lesson plans uh, in, in, in Loudoun County, for example, explicitly teaching critical race theory. Uh, to high school students. But uh, the, the the game that they play, is they, it's like saying, you know, we're teaching the Ten Commandments and we're teaching the Holy Trinity, but we're not teaching Christianity because we didn't label it Christianity. Um, you know, these are the principles. If you're teaching whiteness, white fragility, white privilege, intersectionality, systemic racism, those are the key five principles of critical race theory, whether you label it as such or not.
1: Would you run through those five again, Christopher?
0: Sure, you have uh, whiteness, this idea of uh, of a racial essence, and then coming from that white privilege and white fragility. So how white people benefit from the system of white supremacy and how white people react when their whiteness or white supremacy is thinking is exposed. Uh, So those are three. You also have intersectionality, this idea that you're a collection of of, of racial, sexual, and gender uh, attributes that can be bucketed together to determine your position on the oppression hierarchy. And then finally, systemic racism, which is a core idea of critical race theory that explains that uh, the entire system of the United States, from the Declaration, to the Constitution, to the 14th Amendment, and even to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, they're all uh, uh, camouflaging uh, deep uh, white supremacist domination that extends uh, throughout American history to this day. Uh, And so uh, these are the core five, the big five principles of critical race theory. Um, And we know that 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 uh, dozens and and likely hundreds of schools in Virginia are teaching a combination of those principles. Um, uh, You know, I I don't think they know uh, where it or where it originates from.
1: Yeah, I don't think parents imagine what they know to be true. Parents actually experience things and they don't write down, but they recall what it is that offended them. They get upset. But also in Virginia, There was a school system that basically shut down across the state for a year and a half because of teachers' unions, while private schools remained largely open as the number of tragic fatalities, I think, were in the single digits in Virginia from COVID. And of course, it was not a risk to children. They're still being masked. Against that backdrop, with no incentive to get your children vaccinated, and I'm a big pro-vaccination person, I think people ought to get vaccinated and talk to your pediatrician about your 5 to 12-year-old. But generally, against that backdrop, parents paid much more attention to what wasn't there. Christopher, it was one of the few silver silver linings of the shutdown was that parents paid a lot of attention to the decrepit ruin of public education, and they found at the rotten core of some rotten cores CRT. Yeah, that's right.
0: And 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 parents, you know, have have total justification in, in being frustrated with. Uh, the school closures with unreasonable and unscientific uh, mandates, and and with a system that clearly prioritized the interests of the teachers' unions over the interests of families and children. And then on top of that, you had parents that were expressing their frustration to school boards at meetings. These viral video clips uh, that that were happening all summer uh, and into the fall. And then the school boards were just stonewalling, obfuscating lying and even in the case of Loudon County uh, covering up a sexual assault that occurred on school grounds. And so what we're seeing now and I think that this is really the agenda for the future is you have to restore trust uh, between parents and schools. And what I'm going to be advocating uh, in the coming uh, legislative session for states to adopt is a, a legislation on curriculum transparency in the era where Teachers are all familiar with remote learning, where they all have free digital Dropbox services like Google Drive or Microsoft OneDrive. Um, I think that that schools have a responsibility to make the curriculum on these sensitive issues like race, gender, sexuality, uh, easily available over the Internet to parents. So you can log on and see exactly what's being taught to your kids. I think that would solve a lot of this problem. I think uh, if they do it right, it would restore some trust. Um, so that's what i think the next step is in this movement i'd love to see it happen in virginia as well as all the other uh, red states
1: Uh, christopher you you, uh create me a question and i haven't thought it through i don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea but every teacher now has the ability to teach on camera for every class is there an objection out there to having every teacher on 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 screen available at all time for the parents of the children in his or her care
0: yeah, I, I think the objection is, 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 is that it would be a, a violation of the student's uh, privacy. Even if students are off camera, the ability for uh, the general public to monitor inside of a classroom, I think, uh, oversteps. I think it crosses a line. Uh, and I, I tell parents, I speak with parents a lot, and they say, oh, you know, what we really need is cameras in the classrooms." And I, and I tell them, if you are at the point where you your, your trust in your public school, the trust in your child's teacher is so low – that you want to monitor it as if it were a, a kind of prison or a penal colony, um, you should immediately find a new school for your kid, do whatever you have to do, uh, move, uh, uh, seek a scholarship, go to a charter, go to a private school. Um, but, but I think the instinct is right, and the instinct is that parents want to know, and parents believe that they have a fundamental right uh, to see what's happening in their kids' classrooms. And so I think the reasonable compromise is simply to say, all lesson plans, teaching materials, books, resources, videos, websites, everything that you're that you're putting together to teach kids on these issues that parents are worried about. you just have to put them in a Dropbox folder uh, so parents can uh, click in and see what's happening in the classroom. I think that's easy for parents. It protects everyone's pri- easy for teachers rather, protects everyone's privacy uh, and gives parents the accurate and up-to-date information they need. Uh, to feel confident uh, that they know what's happening in the classroom.
1: Okay, you've thought about this a lot more than I have, so I'm going to take that under advisement as the good halfway house. I just know from my own experience of three successful kids raised through public schools, there was a lot going on I did not know about bias, political bias, not racial bias, that I was only told about years after I couldn't get upset and go talk to a teacher. And so (laughs) kids don't tell their parents, right? They don't tell their parents when they're being um in any way pressured to believe not believe or mock not mocked for any variety of things they just don't tell their parents and so there is a there's a gap in there but you you're a, you're well positioned to caution those who want to go to full transparency just as i caution people they never want to see the supreme court on tv it would be a terrible development in life so christopher rufo what happens next i've, I've done two debates since CRT became an issue in the United States. One for the recall candidates in California moderated. That then moderated in Ohio. Senate debate with six would-be Republican nominees. Talked about CRT in both settings. Was criticized by legacy media in both settings for raising CRT, even though half the country's on fire and the and half of the other half is concerned and one half of the other half is in denial. What do you think ought to happen in the political discourse about CRT?
0: I think we just have to keep uh, providing the evidence. We have to keep explaining the terminology. We have to very patiently keep building the case. Um, and, and then we have to have faith, ultimately, that voters can see through obfuscation and lies and condescension. The left relies on uh, confusing academic jargon. They rely on the, their, own, uh, their own self-image of, of brilliance and competence and sophistication to try to bully parents and shame parents and condescend to parents, uh, telling them that they don't know what critical race theory is, they're not smart enough to understand the terms. But what we've we've seen in Virginia is that parents don't like that. Uh, They don't like being treated uh, as if they're stupid. They don't like being treated as if their concerns are are, uh, illusionary. And what you saw in Virginia is that parents, including Latino parents, Asian-American parents, uh, and even Biden-supporting parents, uh, crossed over to vote for Glenn Youngkin because they trusted him. Uh, they believed in his message of banning this abusive pedagogy, pedagogy of critical race theory. Uh, and and they, they, they really trusted their own intuition that something has gone deeply wrong in our institutions. And I think that's what is going to be the end game for us, for conservatives. We have to offer the American people and American electorate a persuasive explanation that's easy to understand, that's, that's digestible for the average person, explaining exactly what's gone wrong in these institutions, and then, and then legitimizing their intuitive feelings, providing them a way to explain it, to elaborate on it, to articulate it. Uh, and if we can do that, and we've done that with critical race theory, I think that we can put the left on the defensive. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can smooth out and really uh, push back on some of their most destructive ideas. And then provide a platform for rebuilding a conservative majority in state legislatures and federal legislature uh, and, and that could actually advance a policy agenda that empowers parents, that puts kids before uh, teachers' unions, uh, and that re- that either restores trust or provides parents with a fundamental right to get out. Uh, I, and I think that's that what is... we want to see, and schools are the battleground.
1: That is the home run in Ohio. It's called the Backpack Bill, which is a universal right to take your education allotment and go to any school you want. In Virginia, uh, Governor-elect Youngkin has two critical appointments: the Secretary of Education and the Superintendent of Public Instruction. And I'm hoping he reaches down deep into a younger generation that is more combative and more actually happy warrior than anything else, willing to to take the Randy Weingartens and the other uh, the liberal. Wing that protects every single exposure. I don't like the Project Veritas stuff. I like serious scholarship, Christopher, which is why I'm impressed with what you're doing at the Manhattan Institute. So, last question: What's next for you? Are you working on a book, on a film? I, I think it's very interesting your film skills uh, coming to play in a political debate. That's very Andrew Breitbart-ish. That's very, <laughs> that's very. Uh, Andrew was a friend of mine. I knew him pretty well, and and he did have about him. A camera's eye, which is a great thing to have.
0: Yeah, no, he had, he had great, uh, great energy, great swagger. Um, you know, I, I'm working on a book. I'll be writing my, my first book with Harper Collins, uh, so that's a big project. I'm spending a lot of time on that. Uh, and then on the policy front, the actual issue uh, advocacy, I'm going all in on these curriculum transparency legislation. Uh, I'm working with one of my great colleagues, Jim Copeland at Manhattan Institute on creating a model bill so state legislatures can provide parents access to the curriculum that's being taught in their kids' schools. Uh, and then I'll be, you know, maybe doing a bit of a roadshow, trying to uh, persuade legislators to take it on, uh, to 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 take it to the teachers' union, and really fight for parents. So uh, that to me is exciting, it's doable, it'll make a huge difference, it returns return power away from bureaucracies, back to American families, back to American parents, um, and it's doing it in a way that is not a negative energy, it, it's actually providing uh, a positive solution, something inspiring for people, something people can get behind. Um, and I think that's what everyone needs and wants. It's a dark time in our country. Um, and for those of us that have the ability to shed a little bit of light. Um, I think it's it's really appreciated by everyone.
1: Uh, around that we well said. With. We are a freedom people. The taproot is the Declaration of Independence. Lincoln revived it. It's equality of opportunity, and it's all people created equal. It's not equity. It's not race consciousness. It is none of that. This is vitally important, and no battle stays won. And so a uh, new generation stepping forward to fight this again. Christopher Rufo, you're among them. I appreciate it. Uh, keep coming back. When's the book publication date? Are you on a deadline, my friend?
0: Yeah. I'm on a deadline. I got to finish by next June. So uh, I got some time, but it's going to be a big guy. It's going to be three, 400 pages. So uh, I, I'm, I'm,
1: work, I'm burning the midnight oil. I'm working nights and weekends. Yeah, get you into the basement and work. Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute, thank you so much. Keep coming back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.